This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power in Politics podcast for Monday, February 19th. On the pod today, Russia is making significant war gains as Ukraine grows more desperate for U.S. aid. Can President Biden convince Republicans to pass the foreign aid bill? And Canada is sending 800 drones to Ukraine, just ahead the impact that will have on the front lines. Plus, billions more dollars are funneling into the Canadian healthcare system. But is the crisis only getting worse? Later, the toll Canada's severe family doctor shortage is having on Canadians' health. We begin in Ukraine, where the tide of war may be turning in Russia's favor. Russia says it has taken full control of the eastern Ukrainian city of Avdivka. That's its biggest victory since capturing Bakhmut in May of last year. Ukrainian troops were forced to withdraw outnumbered in manpower and supplies. U.S. President Joe Biden says there's new urgency for House Republicans to stop blocking aid to Ukraine. They're making a big mistake not responding. Look, the way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations, is just shocking. I've been for a while. I've never seen anything like this. The Senate has passed a bill committing $60 billion in new aid for Ukraine, but House Speaker Mike Johnson has said he won't be bringing it to the floor unless border measures are added. Meanwhile, in Brussels... Alexei Navalny's widow is meeting with EU foreign ministers in Brussels three days after the Russian opposition leader was confirmed dead. Yulia Nalvinya believes she, he was poisoned while in custody in a Russian penal colony. She's vowing to continue his fight against the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. Here in Canada, Defence Minister Bill Blair announced additional help today for Ukraine's fight against Russia. Canada is investing over $95 million to provide Ukraine with more than 800 Sky Ranger R-70 drones. These are made right here in Canada. Canada is not going to stop. We're still working very closely with Ukraines and all of our international partners to provide them with what we need. The CBC's Rafi Bujikanyan is covering this announcement. What can you tell us about these drones, Rafi? JP Bill Blair made it sound like this is, you know, part of Canada's ongoing commitment to Ukraine, that it is a big deal. These are drones, as he noted, that are built in Canada, some 800 of them, worth $95 million in total. They are mostly used for surveillance. They come with cameras, but they are capable of delivering payloads of munitions as well, though the government heavily hinted in their news conference that they will be mostly deployed for surveillance, that they'll be able to track uh, enemy personnel as well as equipment on the ground in, uh, in in high definition, in precise locations. Now, I should note that this package is not coming from new money. It's part of the $500 million that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced last year when he was visiting Ukraine in June, though it is the first time we're hearing about uh, what, what the, about one-fifth of that money will be used for. Blair also took questions after this announcement about Canada's own military and about Navalny's death. What else did he have to say about that? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of the questions did focus on what is exactly the, the nature of Canada's commitment to Ukraine at this point. The the idea that, um, or, or you know, the, the the fact that Avdivka fell to Russia was was brought up to him during this news conference, uh, and and the fact that Ukraine has been asking for ammunition uh, to be able to keep fighting against Russia, even as even as Avdivka was falling. Uh, Zelensky was in Munich at that security conference and he was telling allies that they can't push back without further help. Uh, Blair hinted that more help is coming, that he is in discussions and he's hoping to make another announcement. But he also pointed out that what Canada has sent to Ukraine so far, that that's come at the cost of depleting uh, the government's own resources in the Canadian military. So so there's a bit of a a balance for Ottawa to follow here. Okay, thanks so much. The CBC's Rafi Bujikanyan. Thank you, sir. For more on today's announcement, Ihor Michael Chichin is the CEO and Executive Director of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and he joins me here in the studio now. Welcome, sir. Thanks for coming on. Um, so you heard there today the feds announced uh, money for about 800 drones to send over to Ukraine. They're pitching it as a way to help Ukraine detect and identify targets. What do you make of this commitment? Uh, we welcome the commitment. Uh, we know that Ukraine is making big headway with drone warfare in a way that uh, no other uh, army in the world knows how to use. Uh, these are you know, great, well-respected Canadian technology that we've uh, seen deployed. So uh, I think Minister Blair, though, said that this is just the beginning of what Canada should be doing more of. Uh, he spoke uh, over the weekend and then today about the need for Canada and its allies to really uh, step up, as we saw in your, in your lead-in, that uh, Ukraine is, is facing the consequences of not being able to respond to Russian artillery. Uh, soldiers who can't fire back have to withdraw or, or risk uh, being killed. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there may be more to come. As you well know, Canada promised a, a, an air defense system, I think it was last year, $406 million. That seems to be kind of tied up with some of the antics that are going on in the United States right now as they're kind of holding up aid. It seems like the air defense system is not really forthcoming as a result. What have you heard about that? Do you have any intel on whether the federal government's able to deliver on that air defense system? Uh, in the press conference today, I saw Minister Blair asked about that, and he said, as, 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 as I believe accurate, that uh, both Canada and the United States are in, in orders for these uh, for these systems, both domestic and for international use. So uh, I, I take him at his word when he says that every diplomatic effort is being made with the manufacturers uh, to to expedite and to deliver the system to Ukraine because they know how urgently it's needed. And why is it needed? You mentioned that we've just seen one city mm-hmm. fall. Why do they need this sort of thing now so desperately? For the last two years, Ukraine has been pleading for air defense uh, because, as we've seen, the, the Russian tactic is missiles, uh, Iranian drones, uh, cruise missiles. Uh, they're firing uh, through through bomber jets onto Ukrainian cities. We've seen thousands of people killed. Uh, you know, the, the damages in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of infrastructure that's ruined. So Russia's primary tactic on Ukraine is is through these aerial bombardments. Uh, we've seen with uh, U.S. Patriot missiles, with other systems uh, deployed to Ukraine, their ability to shoot these down and reduce the, uh, the death toll, reduce the risk to, to energy infrastructure. Last winter, we saw you know, devastating energy shortages, and this, that's not happening this winter. They're better prepared. Let's talk about how Canada compares to maybe some other countries in terms of what's been offered to Ukraine, countries that are a lot smaller than Canada. 
Canada, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands have contributed comparatively more than we have to this point. Um, Denmark, for example, there are only about 6 million people there. They've contributed something like $12 billion in military aid. Uh, Norway, 5.5 million people, more than double what Canada's contributed militarily to Ukraine. What do you make of those figures? Those are figures that we, we uh, use all the time. They're part of the international assessment tool that's, that's available online for people. Uh, today, I think, or yesterday, Denmark actually, the minister from Denmark said they were going to sh- send all of their artillery shells, every single thing that they have, to Ukraine. Wow. Uh, there's no need for them to be sitting in warehouses for the Danish army. So I think we understand, I mean, with the Baltic states and Poland and other countries, they... They understand the existential threat. They are literally there. They, uh, they have the history in their memory. And I think these European nations also know the danger and the threat that Russia poses. So I think as Canadians, we sometimes feel that it's uh, far away or sort of distant. We don't understand that Russia is our northern uh, you know, border neighbor. Uh, and so we have a sort of a, a little bit of a slower response, I think. But I, I do see you know, in the polling that we've talked about, uh, Canadians do understand which side Canada should be on. Uh, they support and agree with the Canadian government doing more, and so we're constantly pushing for that more to roll out with dollars and uh, announcements that, that turn into actually action on the ground. It does seem, though, that there is some slumping support for Ukraine. And there's one poll, one, we don't have to hang everything on one poll, but one Angus Reid poll suggests that uh, nearly a quarter of Canadians surveyed find that we're offering too much support to Ukraine. Like, what do you say to people who are feeling like Maybe it's too distant. Maybe this is not a Canadian or American problem. This is a European problem. Maybe we don't need to do anything more than we've already done. Unfortunately, I, I would say to those people, what do you think will happen if Russian forces win in Ukraine? Uh, do we want uh, Putin to expand into the largest country in Europe and sort of establish a dictatorship uh, and further, you know, for, further ruin the economic, the democratic, the the uh, you know the, all the the social and uh, industrial impacts that that would have on our lives. So I, I, what I saw in that poll also is that three quarters of Canadians do continue to strongly support Ukraine. Uh, so that that gives me uh, strength and uh, energy to keep doing this advocacy work that we do. That uh, you know there is that minority who is watching alternative media sources, who's watching the Russian narrative. Uh, and who are kind of leaning into that, unfortunately. Yeah, and that same Angus Reid poll found that nearly half of conservative voters surveyed said that it's time to slash support for Ukraine. What's driving that? You just talked about maybe some alternative media, some maybe some Russian propaganda that's leaking onto social media channels. But why do you think conservative supporters in particular are seeming to sour on support for Ukraine? Yeah, I don't know the the answer to that. I would say that we've been pushing for the last couple of months to have all parties, all party leaders, all MPs, uh, to stand strongly on on the issue of Ukraine. You saw that with the free trade agreement discussions that have been taking place. Uh, We think that it makes sense for for Canadians, for Canadians of all parties. There's always been a consensus on the need for standing up to Russia and support for Ukraine. And not only for it's the right thing to do, but it is in our interest as Canadians from an economic, from a security and trade perspective as well. The second year anniversary of this conflict already is looming. You know, yes. how is the Ukrainian Canadian community feeling as this war drags on as we enter this next year of conflict? How are we feeling here at home about all this? Uh, we are uh, we are despondent about the the situation, but we are energized to uh, welcome the almost 250,000 refugees that have come to Canada. Uh, there's more than 40 events taking place next Saturday across Canada and literally every major town and city. Uh, to stand with Ukraine to show support. 
we have, uh, I think, as you said, in the poll, vast numbers of public support with us. But it is it is a, an exhausting message to keep carrying, and it is a tired uh, a tired public uh, that sort of you know is weary of this war that sort of doesn't seem to end. But our job is to say it, it isn't ending until we help Ukraine win. Uh, right now, the West is not giving Ukraine enough aid to help them win. We're just helping them not lose. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you so much to the CEO and Executive Director of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Ihor Michael Chichin. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Canada has a severe shortage of family doctors, with over 6 million adults in Canada saying they don't have regular access to a family doctor or nurse practitioner. That translates into over one in five adults without regular access to primary care. And the Ontario Medical Association warns it's only going to get worse. The really scary part for me is that, you know, that we're moving towards, you know, 2026, the prediction is one in four. So 25 percent of, of people uh, in Ontario without a family doctor. So it, it's getting worse. There's a lot of harm. Like there's a lot of morbidity, mortality happening because of this. For more on what this means nationally, Dr. Kathleen Ross is the president of the Canadian Medical Association and she joins me now. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Ross. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the latest data suggests about six and a half million Canadians are without regular access to primary care. What impact is this having on the health of our population? There's no question that all this is going to be having an impact. Family physicians provide that comprehensive care, you know, cradle to cradle, cradle or what I like to call diaper to diaper, and really ensuring that patients have that continuity of care to help navigate our complex health system and and really, without that family physician, uh, you're walking through your health and wellness journey um, unsupported. This is a growing crisis. Uh, it takes a toll on patients uh, that don't have access, and it certainly takes a toll on those of us trying to provide optimal care in, in, in an under-resourced system. I was speaking to a 30-year-old woman yesterday. It took her seven months to get diagnosed with colon cancer uh, because she didn't have access to a family doctor. She says if she had that physician to go to, she might have had this recognized earlier. She might have been able to have treatment earlier. It just seems unconscionable, doesn't it, that someone has to wait seven months just to get the diagnosis that they have colon cancer. And, you know, we know that there are potential solutions out there. And uh, this year we've seen a historic investment uh, on behalf of the federal government in healthcare, and And we're seeing that transparency and accountability across jurisdictions agreeing to, to invest in primary care. We know we have to, to get moving um, on improving how we're delivering care now, but simultaneously planning for the future. Uh, and that begins by having a hard look at what we've got for a workforce today and determining what we're going to need in the next 10 to 20 years. Let's talk about the future, and I want to talk about retirements in particular. I was struck by one figure that was relayed to me recently. About 2 million people in Ontario have a doctor that's over the age of 65. There are similar figures in other provinces. There really could be a tidal wave of departures in the next few years, couldn't there? Are, are we ready for that as a country? Well, I think the other interesting statistic is that the average age of family physicians in this country is is over 50. So uh, not just the immediate retirements, but again, looking that 10 to, to 15 years out uh, out in the road, looking at these solutions, we need to increase our training opportunities. So we've heard a call for increase in residency positions across the country, but we have to look at working uh, to improve the situation for the workers we already have. And that means uh, improving physician mobility so that we have the ability to, to take time away for personal training, uh, additional education, holiday 
uh, you know, I think these are these are all challenges we face. The time is definitely now for us to look at fully supporting team-based care across the country so that we have the ability to leverage the skill set uh, of other healthcare workers. We need to decrease the administrative burden that we face as family physicians and really streamline uh, our time so that we're not spending, uh, you know, 18 and a half million hours a year uh, on, on unnecessary paperwork. The federal government has cut some funding deals with the provinces. There's been seven signed so far at last count. There is some money allocated in those deals for medical residency spots to boost enrollment so we can graduate more doctors. There's foreign credential recognition funding as well. Do you think Ottawa has done enough to address this family doctor crisis? I think this is a crisis that crosses jurisdictions and it crosses political parties. We know we can't recruit our way out of this, but certainly having those uh, internationally trained physicians and nurses that are in Canada who want to work here and streamlining their incorporation is great. We need to train more, and that's something that requires collaboration across all jurisdictions. We also know that we need to work on retaining uh, the physicians and nurses that we have in play now by improving their work environment. All of those have to happen and there's no one jurisdiction that can solve this. We need this ongoing documented collaboration and quite frankly that's where I see the hope for our Canadian uh, healthcare system right now is in this collaboration. And I need to keep encouraging Canadians to ask those tough questions of their political leaders keep health and wellness top of mind. And, and I believe we will see significant improvement in the months to years ahead. Yeah, there has been some collaboration. Ontario and the federal government did sign a health care deal a few weeks back, but I was kind of digging into the numbers in terms of what they agreed to. They're, they've essentially agreed to fund 269 more medical residency spots for family medicine in Ontario. And if every doctor treats about 1,000 patients, that means give or take 269,000 people could gain access to primary care as a result of this deal. But right now, 2.2 million people in the province don't have access to a family doctor. It just seems like this big deal that's been touted as a multi-billion dollar fix is really just a bit of a band-aid for the problem, isn't it? You know, JP, I think this highlights the need for us to really start leveraging all healthcare uh, workers' potential as part of a team. Uh, and having that team includes a physiotherapist, a pharmacist, a nurse, or a nurse practitioner, social worker, so that we can uh, we can work to meet the needs of Canadians in the immediate time while we work to train uh, for the future. But these. Uh, all three aspects are needed. We need to incre increase what we're training at home. We need to ensure that we can recruit and uh, and retain the workers that we have. These are long time coming problems and, uh, and I think there are steps we can take immediately to make improvements. Ottawa is also about to announce a multi-billion dollar pharmacare deal in the coming weeks. Uh, I've heard from some doctors and some patients who say that money should really go to fixing the system we already have. What's your take on this? So there's no question at all that I see in my own practice throughout the years challenges where patients are making a decision uh, between taking their medication, paying their paying their rent, uh, or or getting food for their family. So we have to find a way that we can improve access to the, to necessary medications. It's a tremendous investment upstream uh, for prevention if we're able to provide necessary treatments for patients before they develop complications from chronic diseases. So yes, we're in support of having these conversations. Would you support, though, moving ahead with a PharmaCare program that's national and universal that could have a massive billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar price tag attached to it? 
I haven't seen the uh, specifics of the proposed plan. However, I, I think we need to look at all aspects of health and wellness. And a, and a part of that is actually is medications. You talked about retaining doctors, uh, you know, and it's also it's almost as if the word has gotten out to some people who are in medical school that family medicine is a tough job and it might not be as good as it used to be in terms of work life balance, maintaining some semblance of a division between those two. And the numbers uh, at medical schools really reveal that the number of people entering family medicine has dropped considerably over the last 10 years. The latest medical school data shows only about 30% of residents are picking that field to enter now. What can we do to just make this profession more attractive so we can have some more family doctors in the system? So I really do think we need to work on our on our model of care and uh, moving to that team-based system where we can we can collaborate and, and ensure that patients get the care that they need in a timely way will go a long way to, uh, to improving the, uh, the retention of, of workers in family medicine. We need to do a better job of, of really highlighting the value of this incredible pr- profession. Family medicine, and I've been a family physician for 30 years now, I can say with confidence, is a tough job. And it has become more tough in, in recent years with aging population, increasing complexity of, of illness, mental health and addiction challenges. There's no question that there are unmet needs. If we can shore up our system of care so that we are fully able to support healthcare providers, work in teams and address some of these gaps, family medicine will be an attractive profession in, in the future. It is imperative that we make the workplace sustainable uh, for those of us delivering primary care. What's the risk if we don't do something to turn this around? I think the health of Canadians really rests on the health of our primary care system. This is uh, has been called a, a gatekeeper, but uh, by your by your article just recently. But truly, this is the foundation of our healthcare system, and and majority of care to Canadians is delivered in that primary care over a lifetime of care together. And we know that that's better outcomes, uh, lesser costs and fewer investigations. So we do need to ensure that that Canadians have access to that foundational level of care. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you so much to Dr. Kathleen Ross, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. The NDP is close to presenting its final offer on Pharmacare. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is threatening to end its supply and demand agreement with the Liberals if the March 1st Pharmacare deadline is not met. When we submit our final position on this, that will be it. And then the Liberals will have to decide eventually whose side are they on. Are they on the big pharma side, billionaires who are ripping off Canadians, or are they on the side of families, the side of workers, the side of women, the side of people that need medication covered? We'll see. The lack of access to affordable pharmacare isn't the only issue plaguing the Canadian health care system. More than 6 million Canadians say they don't have regular access to a family doctor. Niloufar Kashmiri is one of those Canadians. She, said it took, she says it's the reason it took her seven months to get diagnosed with colon cancer. I haven't had a family doctor since I moved to Toronto uh, probably eight years ago now. It's a system that's based on luck and access and who has whose parents had a family doctor that's still practicing. But the reality is that the system doesn't work perfectly. um, And so people fall through the cracks. And I turned out to be the unusual person without a history of colon cancer who had colon cancer. 
Experts say the family doctor shortage is expected to get worse before it gets better. So should tackling pharmacare still be the priority for Canada? It's time to bring in our Monday power panel. Brad Levine is a former communications director for the NDP. Vandana Cutter is an advise, is a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And here with me, Tim Powers, who has worked as a conservative strategist for conservative parties. Okay, let's start with the doctor shortage issue here, Brad. We heard there from... Uh, Nilufar Kashmiri interviewed her yesterday. She said it took her seven months to get diagnosed with colon cancer. They caught it, luckily, just in time. But she thinks she would have had better care if she had a family doctor. And she's not alone. Six and a half million Canadians don't have access to primary care. Why have our political leaders let this situation get so bad? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. And, <laughs> and in fact, if you go back, uh, and this is not a new uh, mm-hmm. issue, you go back 20, I was just doing some research in advance of our conversation today. You know, you can go back to the 2004, 20 years ago, Jack Layton made uh, doctors, uh, more family doctors for Canadians, the foreign credentials uh, issues, and, you know, just didn't form government in order to, uh, to implement uh, those game plans. So the, I think the first point here is that it's not new. The second uh, point is that I don't think that it's a choice between one component of Canadians' healthcare continuum over another one. It's not like we focus all of our time over here on this aspect because they're so interconnected. That is, access to prescription drugs keeps you out of hospital. Uh, having a family doctor, of course, gets you diagnosed for ailments like colon cancer, like your like your uh, person that you that you spoke to yesterday. So. Canadians need both. I don't, I don't like the false choice that some folks are making saying, you know, if we have any extra money, let's put it over here now, as if, as if, it's a, uh, as, as if uh, just focusing for a short period of time on one. We have to look at the, uh, all the components that go into Canadians' health and ensure that we're having adequate funding uh, in each of those. It goes down to things like house, uh, you know, housing. It goes to the environment with things like climate change and, and pollution. A whole number of aspects affect whether or not Canadians uh, are, are, are living the healthiest lives they can, especially when they interface with the healthcare system. Vandana, I was looking at the 2021 federal election campaign platform for the Liberal Party of Canada earlier today because I seem to remember they did promise in that campaign to get everybody a family doctor, and, and sure enough, that is actually in the document, making sure every Canadian has access to a family doctor or primary health team, and then they detailed how they were going to hire 7,500 more doctors in the next term. You know, they obviously haven't delivered on getting everyone a family doctor. It's a tall order. They probably never really were going to accomplish that goal. They might have been a bit of false advertising in that platform. But do you think that there is a political risk for the government because they really haven't delivered and the crisis is just getting worse? We're up to six and a half million people without a doctor. I think the thing with our federal system is that healthcare is primarily on the focus of provincial governments. And I think that kind of causes some of the disruption we have. You know, every province kind of has different issues with the healthcare system and they're all coming, you know, to fruition now. You know, we're seeing post the pandemic, we still haven't recovered. There's a lot of doctors and healthcare workers who are still suffering from burnout. Um, you know, we have we have way too much pressure on the system. So I think the government still has to continue to show that they're working towards healthcare. I think people do understand that having everyone having a doctor within you know, a few years is a tall order, but as long as we're still working towards that and there's momentum. So I think the work they're doing on pharmacare and putting healthcare on the table, the reason they deal they did with um, the government of Ontario all helps them, all helps build their case that, you know, they indeed are taking healthcare seriously and that, you know, we're on track to hopefully get those, get a family doctor for everyone in Canada. 
I was digging into that deal that they signed with the province of Ontario a couple weeks back, though, and some of the numbers don't give me a lot of hope. I mean, there's funding in there to have 269 more medical residency positions over the next five years. Every doctor has about 1,000 patients on their roster. So we're talking about 269,000 people getting access to primary care. Right now in Ontario, more than 2 million people don't have a family doctor. Is what has been proposed and signed and and agreed to by the province and the federal government. Is it enough? Do they have to go back at this down the road to try and fix this problem? Well, I think you can argue that, you know, you can always do more in healthcare. Like we have an aging population, which we'll get into. You know, we have people coming to the country. We also have, you know, a number of people are living longer. There's a number of complex health systems that are coming through. And I think the more we learn about the issues with healthcare, the more we're understanding that we can't look at it as one path or the other, that we have to look at it holistically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mental health, we talk about, you know, Brad mentioned, you know, pollution and climate change and um, like, uh, and and pharma care and getting access like all these things you know come together but i think we're you know being one of the Spanish generation that is dealing with my children but also seniors like a lot of us are seeing it collide and i think that's happening not only in canada but it's happening you know around the globe and i think you know this is just a first step it doesn't mean it's the only step i think we all have to continue to work together i think the best thing that came from this showing that you know there is momentum in healthcare, and we just have to keep that going Tim, I want to talk about your home province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, the doctor shortage there is going in the wrong direction. The current government's tried a lot to kind of recruit people and bring people into the province, but they can't keep up with retirements. There's just a mass number of people retiring every year. I mean, more than 2 million people in Ontario alone have a family doctor that's over the age of 65. It's not unique to Newfoundland, but what do you do? You know, you have over 100,000 people on a waiting list in your province. Mm -hmm. Nearly a quarter of the population in Newfoundland are on a list to get a doctor, and it's an, an aging province. Like, this is a crisis, and do you think that there's enough attention paid to this issue, or do we just sweep it under the rug? JP, you're not going to invite you for supper in Newfoundland talking <laughs> like that, buddy. My God, you just made us all depressed. Sorry. That's uh, okay. Um, Jake's dinner. I want Jake's dinner. Uh, you want Jake's dinner. <laughs> um, uh, but the government of Newfoundland Labrador, in fairness to Dr. Fury, the premier, the only doctor among all the premiers mm-hmm. at the moment, so he does have some firsthand understanding of all of this, has a pretty ambitious transformation program. But as Vandana said, as Brad alluded to, you're not going to get new doctors right away. Uh, Newfoundland has looked at credentialing, which is a provincial issue, which the colleges control, uh, to see if there's the opportunity there. I, I was working in, in radio last summer, and one of the great stories was about a talented Ukrainian refugee who'd come to Newfoundland and Labrador, wanted to work in medicine, but was told she had to wait five years, right? There's something yeah. wrong with that. Um, they're looking at care clinics, which are a lot of provinces are looking at now to try and manage uh, uh, patients without their own family doctor. Look, there's no one magical solution here. Nova Scotia and Newfoundland are pretty ambitious in what they're trying to do to, to knock this down. But this isn't going to happen fast. But back to something you asked Brad about, and I think Brad's right, it actually is longer than 20 years. It's going back to the leadership debate in 2000 when Stockwell Day holds up a mm. sign on a stage and says no to tier health care. Mm. I mean, we have this 
stupid debate in Canada about systems that already exist. Politicians move inches. We need them to move miles. They're getting better at it, but it's on us too, right? We consider, oh, government fixes, government fix that. We have to, Vonda talked about this, we have to keep the pressure up on them too and, and recognize that we have to make sacrifices uh, as well in terms of the choices. We can't do everything. I agree with Brad that it's not entirely a binary choice, but we can't fully far, fund pharmacare, fully fund home care, fully fund mental health. Let's be real. Let's talk about who has the responsibilities and where all of this can be done. Well, we don't like that conversation because people will be upset. Brad, does Tim have a point? Is there a limit? Can you keep rolling out new programs when the ones we already have aren't doing so well? Well, you, you, of course you, of course you can. You, you set priorities and you, and you execute on them. I mean, look, the Liberals promised relief on uh, prescription drugs. Uh, this goes back maybe even before Tim. Uh, the 97 election, we're still waiting. No action was taken whatsoever. Canada is as close as we've ever been to actually getting, uh, you know, a handle on prescription drugs for those that are uninsured. So, you know, if you take things to bite size, you know, it, it, it's not either nobody uh, gets extended coverage uh, or everybody does, right? There's, there's different models. And I know that, you know, the New Democratic Party has been talking about, uh, you know, that they, they want a single-payer uh, system like that. If you take a look at the at the history of Medicare, Tommy Douglas, you know, was first elected. It was the 1944 election. He brought in the first step, got reelected in 48. Brought in the second step, uh, got reelected, and each time he uh, sought a mandate from the people of Saskatchewan to take the to take Medicare to the next stage. Until 1960, uh, the 1960 provincial election, where he said, "We're we're at the final stage now. Do you give me a mandate to finish the job?" And he did. Now, if he said that in 44, most people would probably say what Tim just said: "Oh, you can't do all that right away." But if you do it systematically and you do it uh, methodically. Uh, it, we we have a record of it being done, and now we have uh, we have we have coverage for uh, for all Canadians uh, on insured uh, care. Now we got to move that to prescription drugs because there are millions of Canadians that don't have a work based placed uh, workplace based uh, insurance, uh, and we need to we need to get those folks covered because they're not taking their medication, they're getting sicker, and. They don't have a, if they don't have a family doctor, then they're just sitting and they're, they're accessing the emergency uh, rooms, which is not the health care uh, you know, delivery mechanism that they, that, they, that they need. So if we can at least get some of these fundamentals in place, uh, we can actually create efficiencies within the system. Right now, we're identifying that which isn't working only because we don't have the pillars in place like making sure that millions of Canadians don't have uh, uh, prescription drug but coverage. But Brad, Brad used, Brad, Brad, to be fair to Brad, Brad used an example of Mr. Douglas, and there might have been 10 million people in Canada now. Mm. There's 40 million people mm -hmm. in Canada. Brad and I probably aren't actually saying a different thing, but if we think we can have the Tommy Douglas system in the time of 2024, we're dreaming in technicolor. My problem with this is we create this illusion that somehow the, Mr. Douglas built this perfect system that's worked tremendously well and we can't change it and now if the system that worked for 10 million people of course it's not equipped to work for 40 million people we can make priorities we can have pillars but we have to accept there's change involved in that and at different times different people will get beneficial health care more quickly and others won't why aren't we honest about that yeah but, but nobody's not sorry to, sorry to interrupt but nobody's saying the status quo or 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 or, or u.s style 
the progressive, I'm advocating, the New Democratic Party's advocating for change in our system. We don't have a perfect system by far. But the question then becomes, do you want to pursue a better system or do you want to kind of cut and run and say, let's bring in profit, let's bring in the, uh, There's the already profit, profit motive. in, Brad. There's already No, profit. more profit. More profit motive in there. I don't, I, I don't think that we need that. I don't think that's part of where we need to go. I would like to ensure those that don't have prescription drugs, like we did with dentistry. Remember, remember people say, well, that, that doesn't affect too many people. Nine million Canadians will now get dental care. That'll keep them out of emergency wards. Now we move to prescription drugs. Let's cover those that don't have coverage right now so that they don't sit in emergency wards. Like, how... That that is, that is change, that is progressive, and it is completely affordable. What the data tells us, though, is that... I think we're all the same thing. Vondana, hold ahead, on a second. Me. I just want to say, what the data does tell us, and the OECD has studied this, is that Canada has one of the worst healthcare systems in the developed world. Uh, I've mentioned these stats. Six and a half million people don't have access to a primary care physician. I'm, I'm bringing you the story of Neil Lafar, who had to wait seven months to get colon cancer diagnosed. She could have died waiting to get that care. She was in and out of walk-in clinics when they wouldn't take her seriously because she didn't have a family doctor to go to, someone she knew, someone she could relay her symptoms to and actually get the care she needs. What we're dealing with right now is not something that's great. Right. And it's probably something that needs to be fixed. And I think the question, Vandana, is do we need to roll out pharmacare, which I take Brad's point. There's a lot of benefits to it. They will keep people out of the ER. It will help people who are skipping pills. They are certainly going to have more access to the prescriptions they need with a program like this. But is it the right time to roll this out when people can't even get to a doctor to get the prescription for the pills that they're actually going to require to treat themselves? But I think to Brad's point earlier, like, why do we have to choose? I think like the government and and people should be capable of doing the work to find out how we get more family doctors, how we get more medical students in, how we accept more foreign credentials, but also at the same time, look at pharmacare. And I think this is the actual issue with the healthcare system is that we look at these, we look at it in a singular lens and it has to be looked at holistically. And I think you can't pick one or the other if you help Pharmacare, you'll have less pressure on the system. I have not had Pharmacare in the past. I remember and I heard the story and it resonated with me. Uh, my parents were new immigrants. My dad was a small business owner. Um, and I heard an interview about this, this doctor saying that they come in for diabetes medication, but it should have come in earlier. But instead, he knows they're taking a, di- a pill every other day rather than every day. And I've seen that experience. I felt that experience. And I think that also burdens the system. And the problem with going with, do we need pharmacare versus that we're always trying to say, how do we just get one thing done when we have to look at it from a holistic standpoint? There's many pieces to this and it will never get fixed if we continue to just look at one case, right? So I think as long as we look at pharmacare, we look at, you know, I think mental health is part of this. I think climate change is part of this. I think getting access to a doctor is part of this. I think how, and I think to what Tim and Brad are saying that we may need to evolve our system. And the reason why people go with thinking, oh, oh, maybe private is better for them. And those are people generally who have the income to do so is because they're not happy with the current system. Now I'll say in emergency care, I think our system is quite good. Just recently I had to call down one for my father. They give him great care. I've heard these stories. 
Is it, should it be better? Absolutely. Should we aim for more? Absolutely. But I think we have to have an honest conversation. It has to come with different levels of government and all types of healthcare providers coming together and talking about how do we evolve a system for today? To Tim's point, we have 40 million people. People are living longer. Yep. There's more complex issues with people. And I think they all have to be addressed. So how do we evolve the system so it's equitable so that we don't have yeah. Some set segments of the population getting help and some segments not. Yeah, okay, let's leave it there. Great discussion, guys. Thank you so much. Brad Levine, Vandana Cutter, and Tim Powers. Appreciate you being on the Power Panel tonight. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm JP Tasker. David Cochran is back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.